Welcome to Trinity on Tap, the New Testament, a podcast series brought to you by Trinity College Queensland, presented by Dr. John Frederick. This is 3.2 The Church, Corporate Cheesy Jesus Club or Countercultural Covenant Family. Many of us across continents, cultures, congregations, denominations, we've been saying, we'll take Jesus, but not the church. This is because we tend to view the institutional church as part of the problem rather than part of the solution. Church is often a hindrance rather than a help when it comes to bringing people to conversion and to a commitment of a life of discipleship in Christ. Yet, according to the New Testament, if we say we love Jesus, we must also, by necessity, love the church. The church is the body of Christ, and we are members of his body, both in local congregations and in global fellowship. For most of us, though, this love of the church, it just doesn't come easily. This is undoubtedly a result of the fact that the church contains people. Ah, yes, people, a constant source of problems. If there were no people in the church, then the idea of burden-bearing, loving one another, acting in humility, other-centered deference, these would not be such challenging concepts. Yet, if we're honest, when we say as a culture things like, we love Jesus but not the church, we're speaking about the reality of the difficulty of living in community, in community close with other human beings, whether they're Christian or not. Whether a person is unlovable, annoying, cruel, narcissistic, and uninspiring, or on the other hand, imaginative, hopeful, humble, peaceful, and inspirational, we have all surely encountered people of each of these descriptions in both the world and in the church. Our experience in and as the church, and our perception of the church as an idea or an ideal, can become incredibly frustrating and convoluted when we're forced to come to grips with the fact that people compromise the church, and that's often what makes us hate the church the most. We love Jesus. And not only do we not love the church, oftentimes we positively can't stand it. We wish we could love it, but we doubt with all its complexities and hypocrisies that it will ever become lovable enough to win our affections. We must first be willing to be honest about why we're skeptical about the church from a human perspective in order to develop a true, biblically-informed affection for the church, which is the temple of the Holy Spirit, the body of Christ, the household of the faith, and the pillar and the foundation of the truth. Now, Each of us has our own reasons, but for many in mainline Christian churches, the church's inability to speak with authority, clarity, beauty, conviction, and its obsession with constantly shifting its interpretation of Scripture to align with the status quo has had us shaking our heads. It's had us asking, why am I here again? When you eliminate everything that makes Christianity Christianity, you are actually of no use to anyone anymore. For others, 
It hasn't been the theological capitulation to the culture. It's been the culture of the church itself. Church just seems weird to many of us. Ben Folds, a popular songwriter, captures what it feels like as someone outside of Christianity when they encounter someone who is a serious Christian, but one of the Christians who sort of exists in this idiosyncratic, subcultural, weird bubble. In his song, Not the Same, from the album Rock in the Suburbs, he describes a friend of his who tripped on acid at a party and then climbed a tree where he stayed the whole night, and then the guy came down the next morning and he was a born-again Christian. And the lyrics to the bridge of the song are this. You see them drop like flies from the bright sunny skies. They come knocking at your door with this look in their eyes. You've got one good trick and you're hanging on to it. To many, going to church is like being zapped into an alternate universe where everyone belongs to a weird club that you don't really get and that you don't really want to be a part of. Now, others have checked out a church because they've experienced consumeristic megachurch Christianity, where everyone always has a creepy smile on. You know what I mean? And where the band blasts a tune that sounds like a Jesified U2 cover worship song led by a 42-year-old hipster rocking a faux hawk wearing skinny jeans. Many have burnt out on consumer Christianity because when seasons of spiritual dryness or suffering crept in, the lack of spiritual depth has left them longing for a place to lament where they could ditch the trademark smile for an assortment of expressions more tailored to the terrible, beautiful nature of life. While many of us tend to think of the church as a Jesus entertainment center that fulfills our every religious need with programs and special goods and religious services, or we view it as an opt-in club for like-minded Jesus-y people, Paul, and that's what really matters, Paul in 1 Thessalonians refers to himself as an infant, a nursing mother, and a father. Elsewhere, the language of brothers and sisters, children, sons and daughters, these are the words used to describe the church. And this is because the New Testament conceives of the church as a family, a family formed by kinship derived from God's covenant, and not merely as a social club or a religious product. In this episode, I want to explore a New Testament ecclesiology. And what that means is a theology of the church. And I think when we look at the Bible, what we see is the church is a body. The church is a temple. And as I was just saying beautifully, the church is a family. It's a household of God. This is the teaching of Jesus. This is the teaching of the apostles. And it will challenge the church today to envision itself as a family configured in Christ rather than a corporate club run by a clergy CEO. Let's begin by hearing the word of God from 1 Thessalonians 2, 5 through 12. And notice, during this series, before we read across the New Testament, before we do biblical theology, we always conduct an exegesis, and that means an analysis of each passage in 1 Thessalonians in its own context. Now, 
ideally would go into much greater detail for a passage. We could spend 30 minutes just on the two or three verses that we read from Thessalonians. But of course, space does not allow for that sort of a treatment here. But I mention this to show you that, in my opinion, the best practice for studying a text, for doing theology, for preaching or teaching from a book of the Bible, is to do what is called expository analysis. The expository approach unpacks entire books of the scripture, passage by passage, often verse by verse, so that preaching and teaching does not derive from our own topics or thoughts, you know, things that we think are interesting, and then we fit the text into that. No, they derive from the inspired, authoritative, revelatory words of Holy Scripture. That is not to say that you can't arrange a teaching or a sermon series by topic, but it is to say that when you work through an expository series, passage by passage, in one book at a time, this gives you a really good safeguard against what is called eisegesis, which means reading into the text, rather than exegesis, which means reading from out of the text. And we always want to be people who do exegesis, lest we be people who tell God what to do by reading our own theology into the Bible. So, in an effort not to practice eisegesis, but to practice sound exegesis, let's hear the word of God from Thessalonians. Paul writes, As you know, and God is our witness, we never came with words of flattery or with a pretext for greed, nor did we seek praise from mortals, whether from you or from others. Though we might have made demands as apostles for Christ, but we were gentle among you, like a nurse tenderly caring for her own children. So deeply do we care for you that we are determined to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves, because you have become very dear to us, you remember our labor and toil, brothers and sisters. We worked night and day so that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses and God also. How pure, upright, and blameless our conduct was toward you believers. As you know, we dealt with each one of you, and hear this, like a father with his own children, urging and encouraging you and pleading with you that you might lead a life worthy of God, the God who calls you into his own kingdom and into his own glory. You see, Paul is devoted to the church, and he's devoted not because it is a community of highly functioning, perfectly compatible people. Paul's committed to the church because the church is a family. And it's not just like a family. It is a family. It's a family by virtue of our spiritual new birth and our baptism into Christ. Reading across the New Testament, we find Paul articulating this very idea in Galatians 3, 26-29. There he links the family of God to the covenantal family of Abraham that has extended from the Jews to all nations. 
thus fulfilling the promise made to Abraham in Genesis 12 and in Genesis 15. Paul writes, For in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. As many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus have clothed yourself with Christ. There is no longer Jew and Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male or female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. In Romans 8, 14 to 15, Paul again refers to Christians as children of God by the Spirit. He says, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. Now, the NIV, which usually translates male-only terms in the original languages to be more egalitarian, like sons and daughters, not just sons, it leaves the Greek here, huiothesia, as sons. Why? Actually, it does this to highlight that what had previously only belonged to daughters through the patriarchs and through the male heirs now belongs to all as the children of God, male or female, Gentile or Jew, servant or free. All are adopted to equal status. Sonship in the ancient world was a way of talking about the legal right of inheritance. In the new covenant family of God, The blessings of Israel have extended to the world and equally to all. Sonship, that is, the inheritance, belongs to all God's adopted children. Russell Moore has written the following. Adoption into a family or into the family of God is real. There is no such thing in God's economy as an adopted child. Only a child who was adopted into the family. Adopted defines how you came into the household. It does not define you as some other sort of family member. What if, what if we started to view our fellow human beings as those whom God is desiring to adopt into the family of redemption, the church? And what if we began to view our brothers and sisters in the church not as metaphorical lesser siblings, able to be cast off at the first sign of social friction, but as our not blood-related, but blood-bought, spirit-filled, true, real family. Then, then the thought of leaving a church for a better children's program, or as a result of the desire for fresher worship, or because of a quarrel with a fellow adopted sibling of God. That would seem like less of a change of preferential worship location and more like the excruciatingly painful tearing of body parts, the pulverizing of joints, the laceration of the ligaments of the body of Christ. We need to love the church and its people with such a zeal 
that the thought of its rupture, the thought of its schism is devastating to our inmost being rather than merely incidental. Viewing our neighbor, both inside and outside the church as true family with the same potential for vulnerability and closeness that comes in the natural family, this will assist us in developing a biblical, Christ-like affection for humanity in general and for the people of God in particular. When this awareness is achieved and becomes part of one's experience in the world, the depths to which we will go for the life and salvation of the world for other people will be endless and it will be governed by an abiding and relentless hope, peace, and unity that surpasses understanding. In addition to being a family, the church is also spoken of as a body in Romans 12, verse 5. So too in 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 14, Paul writes, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in the one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. And we were all made to drink of the one spirit. Indeed, the body does not consist of one member, but of many. Likewise, in Ephesians 1.23, the church is called Christ's body, which is the fullness of him who fills all in all. And Ephesians 4, 15 through 16, this one body grows in unity, Paul says. Check it out. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together, by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Jesus' own teaching in Matthew 16, 18 promises that the gates of death will not prevail against the church. And then the apostle Peter teaches in his epistle that we are living stones and that we are a kingdom of priests in the spiritual temple of God. The church is absolutely central to Jesus, to the apostles, and to the entire New Testament. And you know, I think the phrase, speaking the truth in love, which we just read from Ephesians chapter 4, I think that offers a way forward to those of us who love Jesus but have been burned by the church. Now, in the United States, as I record this podcast, the country is gearing up for its presidential primary. Strangely, to the shock of almost all political scientists and all political analysts, the number one most liked candidate in the country is a 78-year-old man named Bernie Sanders. It defies the metrics. It defies the odds of basically everyone. And while the professionals try to figure out why Bernie resonates with so many millions of people, Most regular working folks completely get it already. It is because they perceive Bernie to be honest, truthful, 
They perceive him to be real, whether or not they agree with all of his views. You know, when I think about how to address these issues of the subcultural idiosyncrasies in the church, or issues that make the church a stumbling block to the culture, I do not think the answer resides in institutional programs, or focus group results, or the work of professional church growth analysts. I think the answer resides in Ephesians 4, verse 15. In the original Greek, speaking the truth in love is literally translated, truthing it in a loving manner. Perhaps, perhaps what we need to bridge the gap between people's love for Jesus and their feelings about the church is to lead not with pragmatism or programs, but to lead with authenticity and truth, and to deliver that authenticity and truth in a real and loving manner. If the church is a place of tradition and truth, but also of humanity and ruggedness and realness, and if we envision the church to be led from the bottom up rather than the top down, we will be more faithfully embodying Jesus and more powerfully experiencing his presence in one another. And that's good for the life of the church. It's good for the life of the world. And I want to invite you to read this week through 1 Corinthians and to catch a glimpse of Paul's vision for the church. Focus especially on 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17, through chapter 14, verse 40. Pray through it. Dream how you can play an active role, a refreshing, renewing, revitalizing role in making the church accord with Paul's vision for it in 1 Corinthians, accord with Jesus' vision for it in his teaching. You see, the church is the body of Christ. It's the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's the covenantal family of God. You matter. You are part of it. God is calling you to be all in for Jesus and all in for his people, for his family, the church. So go in peace to love and serve the Lord. I'll catch you next time. This podcast was brought to you by Trinity College Queensland. Honest answers to tough questions. Visit trinity.qld.edu.au to learn more.